Huge news, Sarah. Yes. I'm not even going to do the intro right now because SCOTUS has ruled today that dot, 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 rule 39 does not permit a district court to alter a court of appeals allocation of the costs listed in subdivision E of that rule. They don't all have to be sexy, David. (laughs) So, listeners, this is... In a case called San Antonio v. Snoozer, which is interesting (laughs) because on Monday, there was Guam v. Snoozer and uh, U.S. v. Snoozer. So it's it's been a week at the Supreme Court of real law and the kind of real law we don't cover here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we were kind of caught um, unawares on Monday because it was an opinion day. And for those who don't know what podcast you clicked on on in your own iPhone, uh, this is Advisory Opinions with David French and Sarah Isger. Uh, we on Monday were fired up. We were ready. And there were opinions rolling in from the Supreme Court It looked like a number of opinions were coming in. And in fact, a number of opinions were coming in and not one of them really of the slightest bit of interest to the either one of us, to either one of us or to maybe any single one of our listeners. And then, you know, what had happened is we, we had dropped the ball. We were, we had planned to talk Supreme Court on Monday. We did not have a backup plan. And so we thought, you know what? Monday would be a good day to take off. But today, we were smarter. Today, we have a contingency. Even though the Supreme Court issued an opinion that is really um, meaningless to our lives, dealing with the Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 39D, um, we have a lot to talk about today. So We came prepared this time. No being caught flat-footed by SCOTUS today. Uh Uh-uh. No, no. So here is what we're going to talk about in a list. Ready, go. So we're going to talk about a SCOTUS case that we have not briefed you on yet. Sarah's going to do that. We're going to talk about an important ruling out of Georgia, free speech ruling out of Georgia involving BDS and anti-BDS law. BDS stands for Boycott, Divest, and Sanction. A case involving transcendental meditation in public schools. And really... Interesting case. We're going to revisit uh, uh, a high school admissions case we've talked about before. We're going to update you on the pro- on the progress of qualified immunity negotiations. Sarah's going to talk something about Andy Warhol. I don't know what. We're also going to have a blast from the past from Harvard Law School that tells you that there is nothing new under the sun. Um, we're going to answer a question from a listener about when you should defer law school admissions a conversation you will not want to miss. And then we're going to end up with really the crown jewel of the podcast, a review, a culinary review of cicada fettuccine Alfredo. So I, I find another more, uh, find another podcast more action-packed, Sarah. I, I, I defy you to find another podcast more action-packed than this podcast today right here. I'm excited for many of our topics, but honestly, I'm just here for the fettuccine Alfredo review. So <laughs> I, I cannot wait. Let's I cannot get, wait. But let, let's, let's get in. to it. Do you want to yeah. talk about New Jersey? Yeah. So this is a case called Penn East Pipeline versus New Jersey that we haven't talked about before. But this term has a few big cases. I'm thinking the Obamacare case, 
the Fulton adoption case that we've talked about, the angry cheerleader case. But compared to last term, it does not have, you know, the 10 hit parade cases that last term did. So I want to bring this one up into our hit parade list because I would compare it sort of to the faithless electors case from last year. Like, okay, maybe this isn't something that you find particularly like wakes you up in the middle of the night. But when you start digging into it, it's pretty interesting. Okay, so this deals with a 116-mile pipeline that's supposed to run between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. The Federal Energy Regulation Commission, which is known as FERC, approved the pipeline after a two-year review. They did 200 meetings with public officials. 70 variations were made to the route during that time. Uh, And look, again, I know what you're all thinking. FERC, oh no, especially if you've ever uh, clerked, if you're a lawyer, FERC is like where you just hit the snooze button, go to sleep and wake up when I'm done talking about this. But, but wait for it. So part of uh, basically this, this natural gas act that was passed after FERC to sort of help smooth some FERCiness out uh, says that the federal government can delegate its eminent domain power to these private pipelines to go get the land that they need once it's been approved by FERC. That includes private land. It includes state land. But David, the problem is the 11th Amendment. I will read it to you. I know we don't do a lot of 11th Amendment stuff on here. Also a time that many people hit the snooze button. But I think you're going to see the head-to-head collision that is happening right now. (laughs) The judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state. Uh, In lay terms, a state has sovereign immunity. It cannot be sued by a citizen, by someone who lives in another state. And that's just like done. Sovereign immunity. It's like a whole thing you can take a class on in law school, but At the end of the day, it sort of says what it means. And let me just repeat, it says to any suit in law or equity. So Penny's pipeline uh, says, here are the 42 parcels of land we need, New Jersey. Now, some of these are actually uh, like real land owned by New Jersey. A lot of them are sort of those easements near highways and stuff that like New Jersey doesn't own, but they own the easement, whatever. It doesn't matter too much. The point is they need 42 pieces of land from New Jersey. The Natural Gas Act says no problem. You are stand in the shoes of the federal government when you go get this land. And New Jersey was like, "Mm, no, Penn East can't sue us because they are a citizen of a different state and we are a state and the 11th Amendment expressly forbids this. And everyone's like, wait, what? We've been doing this for a hundred years. What are you talking about? (laughs) The federal government has been delegating its eminent domain power to private entities, I mean, since the beginning, basically. Uh, So we've got a bit of a, a problem here. New Jersey says, yeah, of course they can delegate the eminent domain power. No problem. The problem is when they go to court to try to enforce it, that they can't do. which is a little cute, of course, but the text of the 11th Amendment says any suit, and what New Jersey says is, 
There's no exception in there. It says any suit, not any suit except for condemnation as delegated by the Natural Gas Act in 1947, yada, yada. Um, huh. So that's an issue. Now, yeah. <laughs> to, here's the, there's the textual issue, which I think the 11th Amendment, like, oh, it's pretty clear on that. Um, the Third Circuit, by the way, found in favor of New Jersey and said that, um, yeah, you can delegate the eminent domain power, but Congress did not specifically try to abrogate the sovereign immunity so that they could go into court. They just delegated the eminent domain power. Oops, you're bad, Congress. Uh, (laughs) And that was the end of that. So this is going up to the Supreme Court. Now, the fact that they found for New Jersey at the Third Circuit, you know, if you're just doing like the raw numbers, in general, it would mean that they are more likely than not to overturn this and find for the pipeline at the Supreme Court. But, David, the reason I bring this up is because you've got like textualism versus like pretty stupid consequences. Yeah. So let's let's do some pre-NGA lifestyle and times. Uh, so before the NGA was passed, um, the FERC approval process proved insufficient to prevent some states from continuing to frustrate the development of interstate pipelines. I know that will come as a shock. States did so by imposing impractical and protectionist constraints on natural gas companies' ability to exercise eminent domain under state law to secure the necessary rights of way to build and operate pipelines. Here are some fun examples. Arkansas prohibited foreign corporations from condemning property. Foreign meaning, I think, non-Arkansas, not like outside the United States. Wisconsin granted eminent domain power only to Wisconsin-based companies. Nebraska permitted pipeline companies to exercise eminent domain only if they distributed gas within the state. Other states narrowly define, quote, public use as the use of the public of the particular state conferring the right of eminent domain. Yeah. So that's what you end up with without this NGA delegated power. Uh, Really fascinating. So the other part that sits on top of this are the politics, of course. There's a reason that it's New Jersey and a bunch of blue states saying that they don't have to let pipelines run through their state. This is very, very much about sort of progressive environmental policies and why they're doing this, even if their legal arguments have nothing to do with it. Interestingly, no red states joined their brief. Now, uh, mind you, this is like state power and like no red states joined. (laughs) Uh, At the same time, the United States under the Biden administration did show up to play and they sided with the pipeline. Now, mind you, that's because the federal government always sides with more power for the federal government, which I have a whole album side on that, actually, that maybe that should not be the role of the Department of Justice, but it's a tough call. Uh, So, yeah, David, that's a case that uh, wasn't argued that long ago. Really hard to say where folks were falling at the oral argument. But I mean, my eyes are just squarely on Justice Gorsuch because the 11th Amendment is pretty clear. Yeah. You know, I was thinking uh, as you're walking through that, I was thinking, okay, in that oral argument transcript, is there any version of Justice Gorsuch asking this kind of question? So, counsel, is your position that the word any means some? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. 
I can't believe we had not covered that yet. It just goes to show that there's a lot, often a lot going on at the Supreme Court that is a real consequence that if it doesn't fit sort of neatly into the some of the culture war categories, you just don't even know about it. Don't even know about it. And I like to think I watch this stuff. And uh, when you suggested this topic, I said, uh, what? What case? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's got everything, right? It's got the politics of climate change and environmentalism. It's got textualism and it's got sort of absurd policy implications. So like I would expect Roberts to say like, yeah, but, you know, you can't have the absurd outcome. I would expect Gorsuch to say it says any. uh, And then I would expect a few uh, perhaps political sightings here, perhaps. Um, But you know what? It reminds me a little of McGirt the Oklahoma case, where the outcome might be absurd, but the court was like, meh, so what? You were, we are on the same, after doing this podcast more than a hundred times, we are on the same wavelength because I was sort I was thinking the same, this is like, oh yeah, Supreme Court rules because of what the law says. And suddenly you realize you're, you're waking up, you've, you're waking up one morning thinking you're in one sovereignty and you're waking up the next morning in kind of a dual sovereignty and well, there it is. There it is. Now, the interesting part about this is unlike uh, some of these other cases that I am super textualist on where it's like, look, Congress or the state you know, legislature or whatever, they can fix this immediately. It's up to them. So therefore, the court should not worry about absurd outcomes because that's then up to the legislature. In this case, when you have the 11th Amendment, if it is found that the 11th Amendment um, prohibits lawsuits based on that delegation of eminent domain, yeah, there's not like a super quick congressional fix to this, except that the right. federal government, basically the pipeline would need to say, here are the 42 parcels of land that we need to condemn, hand it back to the federal government, and then the federal government can sue New Jersey to take those parcels of land. That would have no problem with the 11th Amendment. Uh, the United States can take whatever it wants from New Jersey. The question is whether it can delegate not only the eminent domain power, which it can, but the power to go into court to basically haggle over what the just compensation is. That's the lawsuit. That's what sovereign immunity might prohibit. All right. Well, now we have another case to look for, another yeah. case to follow up on. And let, let's move on to the great state of Georgia, shall we? Let's. Okay. So if you have followed um, the dispatch pod, this pod, my writing, Sarah's writing, you're going to be fully aware of this emerging movement on the right to try to punish entities or corporations that are quote unquote woke. I would refer you to um, my most recent newsletter at thedispatch.com, French Press newsletter, where I talk about some of the anti woke bills that are dealing with uh, teaching a, of CRT, con- critical race theory, or concepts related to CRT, or concepts that some people erroneously relate to CRT, uh, trying to ban that broadly in both high schools and sometimes universities. So what we're seeing now is a move on the right to try to use the power of the state to punish companies that engage in advocacy that um, state, leader, state leaders don't like. Okay, so one of these cases, uh, there's actually been a bill that has become law. It's not a broad anti-woke bill. It's a pretty narrow bill. 
And it came, it became law in the state of Georgia. And it was actually passed a couple of years ago. And the issue is, can the state of Georgia prohibit, uh, can the state of Georgia prohibit its, you know, um, various agencies from entering into contracts with an individual or company that engages in a boycott of Israel? Okay, this came up because a woman was contracted to go speak at Georgia Southern University. She was invited to speak at a critical media literary conference, and she had an honorarium, uh, a contract for an honorarium, costs of travel and lodging, and that there's language that the university required the school to include, and that her invitation would be honored only if this language is acceptable. And the language referenced in the agreement was the following clause. You certify that you are not currently engaged in and agree for the duration of this agreement not to engage in a boycott of Israel as defined in Georgia law, blah, blah, blah. The law, the law says the state shall not enter into a contract with an individual or company if the contract is related to construction or the provision of services, supplies, or information technology unless the contract includes a written certification that such individual or company is not currently engaged in and agrees for the duration of the contract not to engage in a boycott of Israel. Um, so the this individual advocates boycotts of Israel. Her she has a film that features a call to action, um, and she says to boycott Israel, and she cannot sign any form promising not to boycott Israel. She files a lawsuit, and the district court um, this week. Entered or late last week on the 21st, Friday, entered an order. Do you want to guess how it came out, Sarah? Uh, I'm actually very happy with how it came out. <laughs> yeah, this was uh, essentially the, the, the court ruled for the plaintiff against the BDS, anti-BDS statute. And really, it was just a very, very, very basic First Amendment analysis here. Um, it was, you know, absolutely clear this was viewpoint discrimination that is uh, and engaging in and as as a um, you, you had viewpoint discrimination that was being engaged in by the government, punitive actions taking it against individuals and corporations engaged in in speech activities that the state didn't like, and the court made very short work of it, and. This is not the only case like this, but it's an important case because it's once again repeats something that we have said many, many, many times. And that is, look, the government can't do whatever it wants with its money. It can't decide that it's going to take a particular point of view in the United States of America and disfavor it so profoundly that it's going to engage, it's going to limit uh, application or limit access to university fund uh, to uh, state funding to state contracts etc cetera, etc cetera, on the basis of someone engaging in speech activities especially when those speech activities aren't related to the contracted issue um, this is kind of free speech 101 Sarah and sometimes we just sort of need a free speech 101 lesson yeah I, look I think BDS is uh, wrong-headed stupid. I disagree with it. All of those things. It falls into that category of speech that 
Maybe abhor is too strong a word for that bucket, but it's the bucket next to the abhor bucket. Yeah. And I absolutely do not want the federal government telling people that they cannot express that viewpoint. Absolutely not. And uh, so the judge obviously found this would uh, fall under uh, some level of scrutiny, but I thought this was an interesting line. Even assuming that George's interest in furthering foreign policy goals regarding relations with Israel (laughs) is a substantial state interest. I mean, let's... There's a little bit of side-eye in that clause of the idea that Georgia has any foreign policy interests with Israel, but okay, let's assume they do. Defendants, Georgia, failed to explain how Martin's advocacy of a boycott of Israel has any bearing on Georgia's ability to advance foreign policy goals with Israel. Meaning, this is so core, just First Amendment, you don't like what she's saying. There's no even like action associated with it. And I do think it's interesting, David, compared to some other laws. By the way, 26 states have a version of this law. Uh, This is not the first time it's been struck down in other states, by the way. Yep. Uh, Boycotts are unique because the act of the boycott is often the speech associated with it. It's not just, um, uh, you know, if the law had said, I don't know how it would say this, you must engage in commerce with Israel or something. That would be weird. But Mm -hmm. a boycott is actually the speech itself where you advocate uh, a group not doing something. And the only way to do that is through speech. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that the First Amendment won, that free speech won out. Interesting footnote, uh, by the way, Facebook, of course, this week removed its ban on any posts related to whether COVID was man-made, Facebook would remove your post if you had questioned whether COVID was anything but sort of the natural occurrence of a virus. And this week they said, due to like some investigations now happening and, you know, everyone's saying this might be real, uh, you can now post about it on Facebook. And I thought to myself, first, uh, I, I, of course, find everything that the tech companies and the fact checkers and, you know, the mainstream media did to shut down debate on that topic um, to be probably the most egregious example that we have in the last, I don't know, David, in a really long time. It was right. so universal. At the same time, I don't see a lot of people talking about how, in the end, speech won. Right. Curiosity won, um, truth won. I don't mean truth, meaning it was created in the lab, but truth, meaning truth that we don't know what happened. That won, despite the mainstream media wanting to shut down the debate, fact checkers saying that it was a conspiracy theory that had been debunked by every public health official, uh, Facebook and Twitter taking down posts about it. And speech still won. Uh, I think there's something to celebrate about that. Even as I am um, very, I, I think that the the media in particular and tech companies did themselves a huge disservice and that that will be thrown in their face for years and years and years to come as these tech bills and stuff that we're going to get to get debated. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I mean, the marketplace of ideas did ultimately triumph there. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the marketplace of ideas and about free speech is sometimes it takes time. It, it it sometimes takes time for truth to win out. <laughs> and, yeah, and the Washington Post had a really interesting timeline 
where I just walked through sort of that, the, um, the Wuhan lab theory from beginning to current and how it sort of came back. Uh, it's a fascinating timeline. We can put it in the show notes. But something that kind of jumped out at me is when it was initially proposed, it was Tom Cotton and it was partisan. And that's when the mainstream media and the fact checkers and tech shut it down. The way that it came back was that after a year, it became less partisan. Right. That's concerning. Don't love it. Nope, don't love it. No, it becomes less, when things become less partisan, and, and there's another dynamic here, I think, that that uh, is perhaps hyper-concentrated on Twitter. And I was I was wanting to, to write about this at some point. An issue will become contentious. And Sarah, I'm sure you've noticed this, but some an, inch, an issue will become contentious. And there's sort of an immediate pressure on almost any sort of blue check who's even in the issue or related to the issue to state a position on it. So what's your position on it? What's your position on whether or not there was a lab leak out of Wuhan? Heck, if I know, heck, if I know, I don't know. But the pressure is state your position, state your position. And so because Tom Cotton was advocating this position that it was possible that it came from uh, the Wuhan lab, there was this overwhelming pressure to reject it, especially in sort of more progressive circles of blue check Twitter and often in part, big parts of the mainstream media, although I'll note it was some mainstream media folks who doggedly stayed on this story. Um, and so it's that, that incredible pressure to state your position before you even know what to think. And that, that leads is, to two issues. One, yeah. because you are not an expert in that topic or even versed whatsoever in that topic, you're going to go with your team, whatever team yep. that might be, whether that team is your fellow reporters, your partisan team, you want to associate with your friends. Second, uh, the minority vo- minority voices on that issue um, probably haven't changed their minds. They still are experts. They know what they think. They're just not going to wade in because like, why get ganged up on? Um, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I remember when Tom Cotton said that and I saw it sort of get changed, right? He said, we don't know. It could have, you know, been, you know, accidentally released from this lab and it suddenly turned into, it was a man-made bioweapon. And I remember thinking like, well, that's not what he said, but like, I don't need to wade into Twitter to defend Tom Cotton and blah, blah. Like, that's not really what I do on Twitter anyway. So someone like me just, I don't know, didn't say anything at all. And it's turning out that a lot of public health experts who thought, well, yeah, there's no possible way right now for us to know. And the Chinese won't let us in to investigate. We can't know whether uh, it was in the Wuhan lab and then accidentally released. Well, they just didn't weigh into the debate at all. And those who did uh, were the ones who were then just associating with their friends. And that's how you get a massive international wide uh, stamping down of a debate. Yeah. You know, I've kind of compared it to sheep and sheepdogs, <laughs> Twitter. So you have a big mass of people in, on a particular tribe. and an issue arises. And maybe you don't know a lot about that issue. Maybe you're not even that curious about the issue, but it's all of a sudden front and center on your timeline. It's front and center. People are talking about it. You don't know what to think. And sort of the first sheepdog on your, on your tribe that barks, then you're going to follow that. So I don't know what to think, but then bark, bark, bark over here. Oh, look, 
so-and-so with this credential, this credential, this credential. They're on my tribe. I like what they have to say. I don't like Tom Cotton. Here we go. Here we go. Let's, let's ride. And you see this dynamic time and time and time again. And the funny thing is, if you have any kind of public voice at all, you will routinely get prodded and poked. What do you have to say about this? What do you have to say about this? What do you have to say about this? As if all I'm ever doing is a sitting on Twitter, looking at what's coming across my timeline to opine on it. I mean, sometimes I don't know about something because I'm watching the Grizzlies, Sarah, or, you know, having fun, hanging out with my family, or maybe I don't know much about the topic at all, or maybe the whole thing looks confused. I'm trying to figure it all out. It's not like, you know, every person who writes on matters of public concern is sort of living there with a, a press office by your side, ready to put out a public statement on any and every issue. I've, I've, at some points, I've thought about pinning a tweet that says, in case you are concerned about my position, I am against bad things and for good things. And just leave it. But it is, but that pressure is there. And then this, this sort of swarm mentality then takes over. And so a lot of this is sort of driven, literally driven by the dynamics of Twitter, which requires snap judgments and snap judgments that are often or almost always heavily partisan or under heavily partisan influences. So it's a, it's a mess. It's a mess, but you're right. You're right. Over time, the marketplace of ideas won out here. And that brings us to this Florida bill. <laughs> yes, Florida. Um, so we talked about this a bit in the um, in the dispatch podcast, but we didn't really dive into the law very much, Sarah. But you know what we do in advisory opinions? We dive. We dive deep like a cormorant getting that fish. <laughs> we dive. All right. So a couple of issues here with this law. Uh, so Florida, Florida enacts a law, Governor DeSantis signs it, that does a, a few things. One is it really injects Florida into sort of the, mod, the social media moderation process where it's going to require certain levels of transparency, require certain levels of what you know, Florida subjectively deems to be fairness. That's one aspect. Another aspect is it says if you're a social media company, you have to give politicians a platform, even if those politicians violate your um, moderation rules. You, you have to give them. If they're a candidate for public office, statewide or local, you, you cannot kick them off. And if you do kick them off, you're fined. And then the other, on a daily basis, if you kick someone off for a statewide uh, office, then you're fined $250,000 a day. A local office, I believe, is something around $25,000 a day. And then there's something that deals with um, um, media agencies or me media companies. So it says that a social media platform may not uh, take any action to censor, deplatform, or shadow ban a journalistic enterprise based on the content of its publication or broadcast. So again, if you're a journalistic enterprise and your content violates the terms of service, you got to stay up. You got to stay up. Um, now, this has constitutional problems and it has a constitutional defense. So, what do we want to do? Do we want to talk the problems first or the defense first, Sarah? 
Oh, I mean, I want to jump straight into being a mall rat in the 1980s. <laughs> I thought you might. I thought you might. This is a, this is honestly, I remember uh I remember reading this case in law school and being like, "Wait, what?" Yeah, it's a weird Are case. you serious? Are you serious about this? <laughs> and I think that the way spoiler alert, the answer is no. I don't think they were serious, but let's explain. Yeah. Yeah, so there was a case, uh, it's called Pruneyard v. Robbins. It's a 1980 case. And the bottom line of the case is it involved some petitioners, it involved some individuals who are engaging in uh, petitioning activities in a private shopping mall. And the mall didn't want these people on their property um, engaging in political speech and petitioning. They wanted them off. This is mall is for shopping. It is not for speech. So it wanted them out. But California law, state law, protected speech and petitioning reasonably exercised in shopping centers, even when centers are privately owned. So in other words, California said, you get to be on this private property, engaging in speech and petitioning, even if it's not your property. And if the property owner wants you off, you, you, you get to stay. So the case goes up to the Supreme Court. It's decided in 1980 um, and under a very different court, a very different court. Uh, And it upholds the California law. It says it does not conflict with the United States Constitution. And the shopping center said, hey, look, this is kind of a takings of our property. You're you're allowing someone else to use it for a purpose other than what we intended. You're also violating our free speech rights. And um, the court said, nah. Nah, um, but there's a couple of aspects about this that are interesting. Um, I have one aspect co- that makes it very interesting, which is, Go. do you know what they were actually getting gathering signatures for? I have forgotten. What is it for? So these were high school students in 1975 when the actual uh, event occurred, and they were gathering signatures from passersby to send a letter to the United Nations Condemning Zionism as, quote, a form of racism and racial discrimination. There's a theme to this podcast, David. <laughs> My goodness. I had forgotten that. Yep. I, I had forgotten that. Um, now, there's a couple of aspects about this case. One, assuming it is good law still, which is a big assumption uh, <laughs> under the current court. Um. The court went out of its way to note that this right to speech and petition must be, quote unquote, reasonably exercised, and that the petitioning could be subject to reasonable regulations to assure that the speech activities didn't interfere with, quote, normal business operations. So in other words, this was not, in fact, a sort of blanket right of access. There was, what, what would you might call it in the online world? Content moderation, perhaps, <laughs> to prevent interference with business operations. So even if you say prune yard is still good law, which I don't think it is still good law, um, you've you, and you're you're on a, a you have a private um, you know entity, you're still going to be able to protect your fundamental business operations, and you're still going to be able to oppose reasonable regulations. I wonder if the case would come out differently if like they're handing out centerfolds, for example. 
Well, I think there's um, I think there's three different buckets here. I think this is the first bucket. Prune Yard is still very much good law. And if you apply Prune Yard one to one, Twitter can argue that allowing a bunch of Nazi content on their site that doesn't fall into, you know, Florida has exceptions for, um, you know, pornographic images, violence, threats, yada, yada. But doesn't fall into any of that. It's just like Nazis are good or something um, that they can say that being flooded with Nazi content hurts their business enterprise and therefore reasonable content moderation uh, is allowed. I think that's bucket number one. Pruneyard still alive, well, running laps around uh, the track. I think it is the least uh, likely bucket. Bucket number two is uh, Pruneyard gets cabined to its facts more or less. It gets pruned. Ha 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 ha. Here's how Pruneyard gets cabined basically this is a shopping mall and it's signature gathering. And I think those are two pretty fact specific issues. Uh, if you're trying to gather signatures from your fellow, um, you know, Americans, and that's a right that's certainly protected under the first amendment, you need to go where people are and shopping malls are, um, you know, the number one place that people are going on the weekends in 1975, no doubt. And so basically it's like high school students, shopping mall, really core First Amendment stuff here to gather signatures. Um, and it just gets cabined to sort of that realm of the world. I actually think that's the most likely bucket. And therefore, uh, there is no equivalent in 2021 as compared to right. social media platforms. Um, and certainly... We'll call, we'll, we'll call bucket two zombie prune yard. Zombie prune yard. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, bucket number three is, uh, I think it's the number two bucket in terms of likelihood, is that Pruneyard just is dead. Uh, it's not a zombie. Right. It was buried at some point. No one knows when it died. It like, <laughs> you know, it was found years later, eaten by its cats, um, sad and alone, because that's a weird case. And, you know, David, we've talked about this a lot, that facts matter and sympathetic plaintiffs matter. Is there anything more sympathetic than high school students trying to engage in the political process at a shopping mall? I mean, how adorable. It's like American graffiti in the Supreme Court. Also idealistic. Also, so, I- yeah. yeah. No, I think you're right. I think zombie prune yard is most likely that corpse prune yard is second most likely and living, breathing prune yard is least likely and even living breathing prune yard doesn't get people where they want to it's and and the reason here is really is is pretty obvious when you think about it so you know we've had these endless sort of social media hearings and i can't remember if it was the most recent one but jack dorsey said something which is plainly and obviously true and essentially it's this that absent a pretty robust moderation absent pretty robust moderation, it's just not a viable business model. So the, the reality is if you take Facebook or if you took Twitter and you re and you pulled back moderation, the extent a lot of people on the right want it to be, these places would almost spontaneously combust with the sheer amount of raw sewage. Um, why do we know this? Because there are social media platforms that are, wide open. And you've probably never heard of them. You know why? Because, or maybe you've heard of them, but you're just vaguely aware of them. Why is that? Because as we've said before about him, go to Gab, go to Gab, 
open up Gab, and it's about like looking at the infamous 30 seconds from the movie Event Horizon, where um, there's a portal open to hell itself, and there is a quick view of what the crew endured when they were in the hell dimension. And it's one of the most shocking images in cinematic history. That's Gab. And it's not commercially viable. And so a social media company is going to be able to come in and say, look, um, you can't make us destroy ourselves. You, you just, there's not a, there's not a constitutional doctrine that's going to allow you to make us destroy ourselves. Now, so I think that, no, finish your, finish your thought. So I think that this, I, I get Pruneyard a lot as Pruneyard, Pruneyard, and I'm glad we've had a chance to sort of talk through it systematically. So footnote to all of this, Texas has been working to pass a, a version of the Florida bill, but on steroids, where there can be no viewpoint discrimination uh, in Texas. Interestingly, they did not make the deadline. Texas has the most amazing uh, legislative assembly rules ever. So... <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to simplify it. They had this one deadline. They didn't make it. There's kind of a way to maybe get around it. Greg Abbott has said uh, they should try that. If not, he can call the legislature into a special session just to do this bill and a transgender athlete bill. I think it's very likely that this Texas bill comes to fruition either before signee die this term or in the special session this summer, in which case uh, the Tech companies, to me, would be very smart to wait to sue on the Florida bill. Note, by the way, there has not been a lawsuit on the Florida bill yet because the Texas vehicle is so much more egregious right. uh, that if they can just wait six weeks, have the Texas bill passed and sue on that, ignore the Florida one, uh, I think that it's a it's pretty slam dunk case under, again, any of the prune yard uh, living sick or dead. <laughs> so... You said a word, a term that I have no idea what it means. And it, Signy it, die. Correct. <laughs> uh, that is when it's gaveled out, when the session's gaveled out. Oh, okay. So that's, is that a term that is a Texas term? I never thought so until you just said that. Signy um, die. It's like a, it's certainly not just a Texas term. Like this exists in like business. It means the, the adjournment. Really? Yeah. I've never heard it in my life. I thought it was a just a Texas term, like how if you finish like seventh in your class at University of Texas, <laughs> you're part of like the order of the majestic e talismanic eagle or something like that. Um, in Latin, it means without day. Oh. Yeah. So it's like without assigning a day for a future meeting or hearing, like you're done. Sign die. Huh. I'm going to start using that. Oh, you should. It's fun to say. Yeah. All right, Sign speaking of like things it. that are calming and fun to say. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. We have to just briefly mention that there's another Supreme Court case that is much more likely to be applicable in Texas and in Florida. And that's Miami Herald Publishing Company v. Tornillo, a 1974 case where the Supreme Court unanimously struck down a law that gave a political candidate a right to reply to critics free of charge in a newspaper that published criticism. Oh. And so this is, this is, you know, talking about if an entity has editorial control, there is a right of exercise of editorial control and judgment. And, and so I think that is far more likely to apply than Pruneyard. But okay, 
calmness. So really interesting, David, because I am reading Dan Harris's 10% Happier book. This is how Dan Harris, who uh, is an ABC guy who many of you have seen on GMA or Nightline or whatever, um, basically tells the story of how he was coked out and doing ecstasy on the weekends and was super stressed <laughs> and ruining his life and then found meditation. Uh, it's a really, really fun read, actually. I, I'm not sure I've ever read a book of someone who is more truthfully self-effacing, not in like a humble brag way, not in like a comedian way, like a true, I am a hot mess of a human way that is so um, concerning and endearing at the same time. Anyway, huh. I, I do recommend the book, but then you were like, hey, let's talk about transcendental meditation. And I was like, funny, I am reading a book about a guy who says that it you know, made him 10% happier. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, with that as a background, let's talk about separation of Hinduism from our schools versus Chicago public schools. Now, that, that's quite a name <laughs> for an organization. Yeah, subtle. Yeah. So this is a case where um, the, facts, the facts here are, are just crazy. So here's from, here, is, uh, here are some uh, excerpts from the opinion itself. So what are the factual backgrounds? From 2015 to 2019, students and teachers and a handful of Chicago's public schools participated in a program called Quiet Time. Sarah, who could be against Quiet Time? I am so for Quiet Time. I wish we had adult Quiet Time. I would love adult Quiet Time. Uh, hey, if it was also combined with adult nap time, that would be fantastic. Oh, I thought those were uh, synonymous. <laughs> the plaintiffs in this case allege that quiet time included elements of both Hindu religion and a practice known as transcendental, transcendental meditation. Quiet time took place during the school day and used space on school property. There were two 15-minute meditation sessions. Sessions were led by transcendental meditation instructors who were certified by the Maharishi Foundation a not-for-profit organization founded by the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi who developed the Transcendental Meditation Technique. Um, so the defendants, the Chicago schools, presented it as non-religious, but they, the plaintiffs say there was hidden religious elements. So it required participation in a puja, uh, is that the correct pronunciation? Initiation ceremony. Students were expected to actively participate Puja ceremonies were led by the meditation instructors. Items were placed around a picture of Guru Dev, a former teacher of the Malharashi. After the items were presented to the picture of the Guru Dev, the instructor chanted in Sanskrit and performed rehearsed movements. Translated into English, the words chanted in, in Sanskrit included statements recognizing the power possessed by various Hindu deities and invitations to those same Hindu deities to channel their powers through those in attendance. The students were taught to silently repeat an assigned mantra. They were told to use only the mantra that had been assigned to them by their meditation instructor. The mantras were in Sanskrit. Those students were taught how to pronounce their mantra, and I'm sure somebody's screaming right now at the uh, at their uh, iPhone. Mantra, mantra, mantra. Definitely mantra. They were mantra. I'm the one okay. screaming. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> They were not told the meaning of the words. Instead, the transcendental meditation instructors told students that the mantras were meaningless sounds. The plaintiffs assert that, to the contrary, the mantras honor or reference specific Hindu deities. And then this was a kind of an interesting aspect. The students were re asked to keep an oath of secrecy. 
The oath required them to keep their experience in the program secret from others, including their parents, guardians, and other students. They were told that failing to keep this oath would make the meditation wholly ineffective. Um, so, lawsuit filed, arguing that this was a violation of the Establishment Clause, Free Exercise Clause, and the Illinois Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Judge Isger, how do you rule? I rule that this school is stupid. <laughs> of course you can have quiet time. Of course you can do transcendental meditation. You can even have a mantra that the kids say in Sanskrit. But come on. I mean, some of this is just silliness that was totally unnecessary to the pedagogical reason. And switch in anything from Christianity for this, and it would be very obvious that you can't do it. So I'm confused why the school felt the need to like take that next step. You know, having someone else, even in a different language, pray to a God in the classroom or gods and then give the kids Sanskrit mantras that also are religious in nature. What? Why? Totally yeah. unnecessary to the stated reasons for doing it. Absolutely a free exercise violation. The part that makes this silly is that, uh, you know, the purpose of the free exercise or the, sorry, the establishment doctrine is to prevent literally the establishment of a religion. That is not what's happening here. <clears throat> Nevertheless, uh, you can't do it. Uh, no. and, and it's just silliness. And I don't understand why the school did something so stupid. And the secrecy <laughs> oath, honestly, like this is a good, like I'm just gonna write down little like notes to myself of things to remember to tell my kid when he gets old enough. And one is, if anyone ever asks you to sign a secrecy oath, you immediately come tell me because whatever it's about, not good. Right. Oh, amen to that. If there's anything you take away from here, from this podcast is, compelled prayer in public schools, slam dunk bad. <laughs> Even if you don't understand that you're praying, it's, it's slam dunk bad. Uh, and the other one is, yeah, kids, if someone's going to make you sign a secrecy oath, uh, preventing you from speaking to your own family. About anything. About anything. anything. You know what you do? You go tell your family. Immediately. Yeah. Immediately. Immediately. Yeah, like, you know, again, I think the transcendental meditation is actually a great idea to have in high schools and middle schools and elementary schools. I think it centers the kids. It focuses them, especially after recess to like, okay, and you're back in a different mode. Sometimes it's hard for kids to make that transition. Such a good idea. Applaud the school for a, a brilliant idea. Again, I think we could use it as adults, 15 minutes twice a day to focus yourself. You, you just can't make it religious. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. We are, we are chewing through our topics, but not quite fast enough because I want to leave enough time for a good discussion of cicadas. So yeah. let's hit some high points. All right. So that Fairfax high school case that we talked about before, where they changed the admission standards for the purpose of having fewer Asians in the class, that has made it through its first procedural hurdle uh, interestingly, uh, that's not surprising at all. What's interesting is that the Harvard case that I said was sort of a less promising vehicle, still quite promising, by the way, but that I wish that that high school case would have made it first. That Harvard case actually was distributed uh, for conference on June 10th. So 
Uh, that means that the justices will be discussing it privately. Sometimes we get a decision right away of whether they're going to grant or deny cert. Sometimes it takes a year and it's just redistributed to conference every week for as long as it takes. But our first week in conference, June 10th. So more to come on affirmative action as those cases continue to make their way. Well, since this is already the Leroy Jenkins term coming up, um, why not? Why not? I think they'll take in, it. I think they'll take yeah, it. I, 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 think, I think you're right. Next um, up, uh, qualified immunity in the police reform bill. They wanted to have it done by this past Tuesday, which was the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. Qualified immunity, still a big sticking point on both sides. Um, just sort of fascinating where everyone's landing on this. Tim Scott is proposing that individual officers uh, re retain immunity, but that the municipalities would be the ones uh, civilly liable. And you sort of have Republicans actually sort of along the spectrum of no from like, I don't think that's a great idea to hell to the no. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Senator Josh Hawley, quote, that's a no-go for me. That's like the nicest thing Holly has said in like a year. <laughs> um, so they're still, quote, hammering out the specifics. Booker and Scott still seem really optimistic that they're going to get something done in the next three weeks. So we're monitoring that. Qualified immunity and holding the municipalities responsible just seems like a very reasonable compromise. It's um, a layup, Sarah. It's, it's a, a layup. layup. Yeah. It is so, because here, here's the little aspect of this that a lot of people don't realize even if you lift qualified immunity in the, the mass vast majority of circumstances guess who pays it's the municipality even if you remove qualified so this is something that is getting you almost across the goal line like as a practical matter as far as do plaintiffs get compensated for when their civil rights when their civil rights are violated you're you're getting there and it's a real, I mean, it's just, it, it strikes me as an absolute layup and would be a, it would be a, an incredible symbol of our dysfunction if we couldn't get there. Uh, so, which means we may not get there. We have three left from the mailbag now, and I would like to defer the mailbag to Monday. Do I have a second on the motion? You have a second, although I'm just so curious about your answer to a question. I know. We're going to have to wait. All right. I agree. And the reason, though, the reason is just spectacular. We have right now on this podcast two special guests. Sarah, sh shall we, shall you introduce or shall I introduce? You introduce, David, but I've got the first question. All righty. Fantastic. Okay, we have two special guests right now. The first is Ryan Brown. Ryan Brown, a already a new a new dispatcher, but already legendary reporter. You're on a rocket <laughs> you're on a rocket ship career track, Ryan. You've gone from the lowly marginal television show Meet the Press <laughs> to the Dispatch, yep. uh, where you're doing great things. So Ryan is with us. And he is joined by Alec Dent. Alec holds the prestigious leading fact check chair uh, for leading fact checker chair for the dispatch. And Alec is the has the the um, uh, privilege of being a graduate of the very same 
Hussman School of Journalism and Media at UNC Chapel Hill that has been in the news because of the controversy around extending a chair to Nicole Hannah-Jones, the architect of the 1619 Project. So, uh, and isn't she also a graduate of, of the Hussman School? She got her master's t- degree in journalism from there. So I, I, I think that, that what that means is uh, your Pulitzer is following shortly <laughs> behind hers. <laughs> and probably nice. for what, and probably that Pulitzer will be awarded for what you did last week. Over to you, Sarah. So I want to jump almost to the end of this story. After eating a multi-course <laughs> cicada meal, uh, lovingly picked, boiled, and prepared by Alec, um, I know, for instance, that Ryan is using this to pick up chicks. And I'm just wondering <laughs> how Wait, that's it, going. Is it working? Yeah. I'm wondering whether it kind this- of Loki kind of is. <laughs> I'm wondering socially how it's been going since your cicada feast, what the reactions have been. Morbid fascination. Hmm. Yeah. Most people are very grossed out, but they're very interested in, in hearing how they were cooked, what they tasted like, uh, which is why we set out to do this piece in the, in the first place so that we could do the original on the ground reporting so that other people wouldn't have to go out and do it on themselves or by themselves. That is true journalism. And the article hasn't even hit yet. So look, this is just this is just the pregame, you know? <laughs> wow, wow. Okay, walk us through your process. Start to finish, you woke up and you needed some cicadas. Yes. So I went out <laughs> to the National Mall where there are cicadas aplenty right now. And I went out with a uh, Tupperware container and some tongs. And I, I literally just picked them off the trees. Uh, ended up getting over 30, I think. Brought them back to my place. Um, Which was, to... can I just say, so many cicadas. Oh, yeah, more than enough. <laughs> like I, was, I was in an area of town that didn't have a lot of cicadas that was like, you know, more developed in buildings and stuff, not a lot of greenery. So I wasn't finding them. And I texted Alec, I'm like, hey, man, I'm really sorry, but I, I'm not finding any cicadas. And he's like, yo, I think, I think we're good. I got about 30. And I was like, how? <laughs> 30? <laughs> I think I, I think may we're have overestimated our appetite for cicadas. <laughs> uh, we didn't end up eating all 30. How many cicadas but, died in vain, Alec? 20. I mean, oh, my yeah. God. 20, no, no. You only ate 10 cicadas. How is that a proper sample size? We didn't even. We got enough of a many. taste very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, David, here's a question for you, though. Uh, as the As the attorneys for these two young gentlemen... Do you think they were in violation of federal anti-poaching laws? Oh, Sarah, no. I, pro- I promise you, you and I basically have one brain because, <laughs> because I, I was just going to ask if what we had was, did, did Alec hunt wildlife on a national park? Yeah, I think he did. Ooh. Oh my gosh. Without See, a license, I, was I assume. The- I was all worried about the butt fungus. I was not, yeah. didn't think I'd have to be worried about poaching laws. You yeah. know, a journalistic integrity requires that we not let legendary producer Caleb edit this portion of <laughs> the podcast. So your, your admission wow. of criminal activity is just going to have to stand and let the <laughs> chips fall where they may. And if 
I get prosecuted for it. Um, no such thing as bad press. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. So, so keep going. So you have the thirty. Yes. Um, are they all alive? And they're squirming. I and I actually ran into an interesting problem where some of the ones I picked were um, just very recently out of their shell, and by the time I was heading back, they had advanced to a point where they were no longer edible, or well, they were still edible, but they weren't going to taste as good. So you want them. <laughs> And the nymph or tenoral stage, which is when they first come out of the ground or when they first molt, that is when they're going to be least crunchy, have the most meat. Uh, but they go from the tenoral stage to the adult stage a lot quicker than I thought. And so when they're tenorals, they're pure white, like yellowish. Uh, and then when they're adults, they're black. And within an hour, I think I had two that I had to set free. They escaped their fate. Lucky huh. cicadas. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Know that. Okay, so you you have the living cicadas. Yes. Um, do you bo- do you just boil them first? Like, do you do any pre seasoning of the living cicada? Because this is this is like farm to table. So right you're here. supposed to oh, yeah. freeze them first to um, kill them in a humane way. Uh, actually, I think I inadvertently suffocated them. In the Tupperware container I had, because by the time I got back, they were they were not moving. Um, so, <laughs> yes, you, you blanch them first to, first of all, kill any bacteria that might be on them. Um, and then to sort of solidify the insides. Uh, and then after that, I tossed them in olive oil with some salt and pepper, just very light seasoned, so it didn't detract from the taste of the cicada itself. And oven roasted them for a little bit. Then Ryan joined me around that stage, and uh, we had a cicada charcuterie board. That was perhaps the most, I thought this the cicada charcuterie board was going to be the most jolting site because <laughs> listeners, what, what was happening real time is that Alec and Ryan were posting photographs in our internal Slack of the cicada feast, and this picture or this, yeah, this photo of the this charcuterie board pops up, and you should have said trigger warning because <laughs> the actual sight of large insects on the same board with you know other with actual edibles was it created a kind of a cognitive dissonance. I, I, I can only imagine what it was live. Oh, it was it was insane. I remember I walked up Alex steps and I was like, oh, cool, a nice little board here. And then I looked at it again and was like, oh, no, that's that's what we're eating. Like, that's them them right there. (laughs) And I was expecting, thank God, Alec did the research. I didn't. I just showed up with wine and was like, I'm ready, man. Uh, Because I thought I was expecting to just see like a cicada with like red eyes looking at me like, you're really going to eat me? (laughs) But (laughs) but thank God it didn't look like that. It looked, you know, just kind of like a like a fried oven roasted thing. Now, do you buy into the idea that this is no different than eating shrimp or lobsters or other arthropod-ish creatures? No, not at all, because those other creatures (laughs) taste good. Yeah, no, I don't. Interesting. Very simple Um, answer. Can you walk us through the first bite? Was it from the charcuterie board? It was. So we Mm -hmm. put one on a cracker, some cheese, um, I think we both ran into the same problem where when we actually bit in, we couldn't taste the cicada itself. 
Yep. So after consuming all that, we decided just to have one cicada plain. Yep. Straight, straight cicada. It was bizarre. <clears throat> it was bizarre. <laughs> it was a weird thing. More than anything, it's just like mentally telling yourself, yeah, that's a cicada and you're eating it was was weirder than the actual taste, in my opinion. But because uh, yeah, the head was, is still on and the eyes aren't red yeah. anymore, but they're still there. Yeah. You and can it still is, look it in the eye. Yeah. It's tough. So much so that, Alec, let's be transparent here. You only ate half of it. Yeah, this, this is true. I ate the lower half because I made the mistake of looking at it in the face before I decided <laughs> to eat it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was disgusting. Um, looking looking at it uh, was, yeah. that is. Uh, it didn't taste great either, but it was not. I wouldn't say yeah. it was gross. Um, no, it was just weird. Yeah. Crunchy. So weird, what? Airy. Comparable to any other food? Uh, at the time, I compared it to popcorn. I, yeah. I think huh. that's kind of uh, kind of accurate. Very I thought it was light, fair, yeah. crunchy, a little yep. salty. So. Yeah. You made the decision for your second course in the middle of summer, basically. It's 90 degrees here right now to do fettuccine Alfredo. <laughs> uh, so that that was yeah. motivated by me hearing all of these comparisons to like shrimp. Shrimp fettuccine Alfredo is one of my favorite dishes. And I thought, well, that's if they're similar, that's kind of a natural replacement for it. <laughs> and it was not at all. <laughs> no. I could I'll add. The fettuccine Alfredo itself, separate from the cicadas, was delicious. And Alec has like this like homemade Alfredo sauce recipe that was really, really good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Wow. But and like that will when, be included in the article for those interested yeah. in making it at home. Did you do the proper, you know, Italian spin your noodles around your fork and then like stab through a cicada and that was the bite? I I did I um, not necessarily spin it, but that was my strategy in getting the pasta on, then stabbing into the cicada. And at that point, given your cheese, uh, you know, time, could you taste the cicada when you already had such a creamy fettuccine thing going? Not really. Yeah, not really. It was just a very noticeable crunch. Yeah. Okay, I was just going to say that it, was, might be it pleasant. was kind of a crunch. Again, but then you're like, the crunch is a cicada. So then you go back to like, oh, whoa. Yeah, for a minute, you're like, oh, okay, cool, crunch. But no, it's, so a, that, it's a bug. That brings me to the second trigger warning that should have been issued, which was, if I thought it looked bad to have cicadas on a charcuterie board, <laughs> when you put the picture into the slack of the cicadas on top of the fettuccine <laughs> Alfredo. It had parsley, David. It was very pretty. It did have parsley, yeah. and it was macabre. Um, <laughs> like it, it literally looked like I thought if you if you change, I don't know. Is there an Instagram filter for like horror movie, like a horror movie ambiance where it's like blues and grays, you know? So you you can kind of. It, it reminded me of what you would see in a horror movie where like somebody's imprisoned in a basement and they're fed for the first time in four days and they look down and there's cicadas in it, you know? <laughs> uh, when is the piece going to come out? Uh, Saturday, I believe. And so I will have all these pictures we're talking about in the article mm -hmm. as well, along with the video of Ryan and me having our first taste of cicada. 
Yes. So listeners it. can see definitive proof that we actually did this. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, this is incredibly kind of you to do this on Memorial Day weekend because a lot of families get together uh, on Memorial Day thank weekend. Thank you, David. And, yes. Thank you for wrecking. You know what? Thank you. We mm-hmm. appreciate that. Finally, <laughs> someone understands what we're yeah. what we've been going through. Well, and this really gives a lot of environmentalists who've been advocating for insect um, consumption of insects an opportunity to put their cicada where their mouth is. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've seen yeah, a I mean, lot that of was articles. The motivation, right? Alex? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of articles where people are saying you should be eating bugs, you should be eating these cicadas, but I hadn't seen an article where someone actually sat down and ate a cicada. So, in in accordance with the guiding principles of the dispatch, I decided we had to do some original reporting and figure this out for ourselves. <laughs> now, as y'all may or may not know, though I'm sure that our AO listeners are well aware, I love cicadas, not to eat them. I am like in seventh heaven right now with our brood X friends in my backyard. I go visit them all the time. I'm very protective of them. And I noticed on your cicada board uh, that all of your cicadas looked about the same size. And I wondered at that point whether you were aware that actually brood X is made up of three different species of cicada and that perhaps we should have discussed ahead of time that it looked to me like you might have only gotten one species of cicada on your charcuterie board. You, you raise a good point. Maybe the other species taste better. Are uh, delicious. We'll Who have knows? to do a follow-up article. Yeah. Are you telling us we have to eat more cicadas <laughs> right now? So <laughs> the three cicadas, happens? by the way, listeners, um, are totally distinct from each other. Like you yourself, if you do a quick Google search for the three species, you're going to be able immediately to know which ones are which. One of them is much smaller. You've probably noticed that, that like occasionally there's like this huge beefy cicada, like Arnold Schwarzenegger's cicada, and then this Danny DeVito cicada. They're totally (laughs) different. They don't hang out together. But maybe more importantly, they have totally different um, mating songs that the males have that like click, click, click is for one species. And the like, longer song that drops off at the end is a different one. And I think listeners are going to be very into this little fun fact uh, because you think you're just listening to the males, you know, singing their operetta to try to attract their, their one and only female love. But actually they even make a separate song during the act itself. And it's a sound that you all have heard before. So you have actually been listening to more like Marvin Gaye, let's get it on, that's playing in the background <laughs> of the cicada hmm. lovemaking. I think this might be grosser to hear than us talking about eating the cicada. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I was literally going to say the same thing. I was like, this is making it all worse. This is making it so much more worse. Knowing, knowing more about the personality of the cicada makes this really hard to now comprehend. So I, I don't know if this is like speaking it. out of school and and because we had an actual editorial discussion about this proposed piece. And Steve, editor-in-chief, Steve Hayes, says, well, on the one hand, this is very dispatch that we're doing this. On the other hand, this is not. Uh, It's very dispatch that we're going to take an issue and do some real reporting on it. Like, we're going to get to the bottom of what it is like to eat a cicada. On the other hand, this is clickbait. So he was actually, for a while, going to say, you can do the story, but you can't use cicada in the headline. <laughs> I think that's what the, the plan. He- 
Yeah. Is that still the plan? Yeah. Wow. I, I thought my counter proposal of 17 things I learned while eating cicadas <laughs> was <laughs> accepted was with reaction GIFs under each 17. Because you have the YouTube footage. You can do the reaction <laughs> do. GIFs. Yeah, we do. Uh, and listeners, yeah, you can also my day, Google... Just making GIFs. You can also Google male versus female cicadas. All things that I wish, Alec, I wish we had the species and whether you got mostly male or female cicadas. If you just flip them upside down, really quick to tell which one you've got, listeners. So I also recommend Googling that so that you can talk to your kids about whether you've got a male cicada who is trying to attract his lovely friend or a female cicada who is the chooser in the genetic battle every 17 years. I think the New York Times actually had, um, I saw this on Twitter, they published an article with the different uh, calls of each species. So if listeners are really interested, they can go and seek that out. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth it. I learned a lot and I really now enjoy my cicada sounds that are really loud. Like the decibel level in my backyard is, uh, it's like you need to talk louder to be heard sitting next to someone. So legendary producer Caleb just put into the chat off the rails. That's not a, usually I don't a good know sign. what he's talking about. This podcast has never been more true to its purpose yeah. than it is right now. Okay. So, all right, we, we will wind this up, but so bottom line between I would go to a restaurant to eat cicadas voluntarily and it is the zombie apocalypse all food has been stripped from the from the countryside. Only cicadas stand between me and death, and I choose death. Where are cicadas? I, if if it's an apocalyptic scenario, I, I hope the apocalypse occurs either this year or in seventeen years. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't plan on eating them any other time anymore. Ryan, yeah, I would I would survive. I would choose surviving over the death, but. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't see, I'm not seeking them out. <laughs> to say Except to impress women, apparently. Right, right. Um, Unless, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. All right, exactly. there you have it. The, the, official, the official review, dispatch review of, cicada, of consuming cicadas is, quote, better than dying. So, yeah, fair? That's fair. Yeah. yeah. Fair? Absolutely. Okay, fantastic. All right. This has been maybe the most multi-topic advisory opinions episode ever. We're going to be back after Memorial Day. Um, are there Supreme Court opinions on the Tuesday after Memorial Day or no, Sarah? Yes. Yes. Okay. So we'll be back. Maybe there'll be something more interesting than Rule 39 of the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure to talk about. But if not, we will be ready. Um, so this has been the Advisory Opinions Podcast. Please go to Apple Podcasts, rate us. Please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and check us out at thedispatch.com. Sarah, do you want to close us today? Signy die, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>